Hello and welcome to Top in Tech. I'm Megan Stagman, Director for TMT at Global Council. And myself and the normal host of this podcast, Conan Darcy, are taking this opportunity in the first week of the year to think about what the rest of the year might look like and what we can expect from tech policy in 2024. The last year has obviously been a fairly seismic one in terms of tech regulation shifts on the online safety side. We've had the DSA coming into force, the Online Safety Act in the UK, digital competition. We've seen various different mergers being blocked, like Microsoft Activision, most famously seeing restrictions in Adobe Figma. And then on the AI side, that has been all anyone seemingly wants to talk about with the AI Summit in November in the UK, the AI Act um, receiving its political agreement in the EU and AI safety institutes being set up in the UK and US. So given all of this has been going on, I think it's very easy for us to just look backwards at what's happened and what is still happening. But a big part of what we are asked to do for our clients at GC is to look forward and preempt what is going to happen next. So in that vein, wanted to use this podcast to get Colin's views on the top five tech trends that we have identified um, as being worth watching for 2024. One of them being election, mis- and disinformation. This is going to be the year of elections, and it will be interesting to see what that means for the tech sector. The US-China relationship being the second. The third being examples of multilateralism in tech governance, namely uh, around digital tax. The fourth being whether there are any specific new technologies that Colin thinks we should be watching out for. And finally, whether there has been uh, a change in public affairs strategy and communications from tech companies in terms of how they are dealing with policymakers around the globe. So to start with the first one, this is going to be a year of elections. Obviously, there are a number of questions about the extent to which the outcome of the elections change the trajectory of tech policy. So for example, what a Trump administration might mean for the US-China decoupling that I mentioned and we'll come on to later. But similarly, for example, in the UK, what a Labour government might mean for the gig economy. But I think it's also worth thinking about what the process of the elections themselves will uncover about certain elements of tech regulation. So in particular, in the UK, there was a, a recent example where uh, a deep fake was spread around on social media around Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition, appearing to show him swearing at staffers. And so I guess my first question is, how much do you think that example and any others has permeated into the political consciousness? Uh, Do you think this is something that policymakers are worried about? Uh, And perhaps relatedly, should we expect any specific election-based AI policies over the next year? So just to pick up on the first point that you mentioned, Megan, undoubtedly elections that we'll see in the UK, the US, the EU will mark a major policy reset in those jurisdictions for tech policy. But what assumption we just need to be careful about is that it's not necessarily the case that we will see as intense legislative reform after those elections. As you just laid out, we've come out of a period of huge reform, particularly in Brussels and particularly in London. We've seen major legislative reforms from anything from AI to content moderation and so on and so forth. Even in the US, where there hasn't been a raft of new digital legislation through Congress, the Biden administration and federal agencies have been very active in enforcement activities and in using executive orders, particularly in areas like AI. It's not necessarily the case that that will continue. On the EU side, 
the EU has taken on powers on the Digital Services Act and Digital Markets Act as a regulator of the largest companies in the world. And that will take a lot of resource and that will take a lot of capacity away from their ability to keep on legislating at the pace that they are. And then on the Labour Party side in the UK, if they were to win the election, at the moment they are very consciously selling a pro-business, pro-tech sector argument in London and around the UK. So they may not wish to engage in the pace of legislative reform that we've seen under the Conservative government. But then to move on to your second point, so what do we think might happen in the elections and has it permeated what people in the political class are thinking about? I think the answer is probably yes. In the UK, you mentioned the Keir Starmer deepfake, but we've also seen similar incidents with high-profile figures like Sadiq Khan, who is the mayor of London. In the EU, we've had the code of practice for disinformation for some time now, and you've got Vice President Yoruba has been pretty public about potential implications for AI in this context. And on the US, both sides are very alert, uh, both Republicans and the Democrats, to the role of AI more broadly uh, within the scope of disinformation in elections. Democrats, most obviously after what happened in 2016, but also the Republicans, due to complaints around deplatforming conservatives like Donald Trump, are hypersensitive to the idea that platforms and AI companies are biased in a liberal direction. So they'll be hot on any perception of that playing through during the elections. The question we should consider, though, is the extent to which what people expect to happen, which is that gent of AI could cause a flood of misinformation that is more authentic than what we've seen before, but crucially at scale throughout the election. Now, it's not clear at the moment that that will necessarily happen. And I know we've both spoken to online safety regulators over the past six months about their views on this. And they would say that, yes, they understand that this could happen, but they have yet to see the evidence of it emerging yet. And we'll have to see how that pans out through election years, because it could obviously change. But there's a question of whether it remains like what we have seen already, which is the old deep fake about a public figure, but actually not a tsunami of new content online. And to just cap off, in terms of the idea of whether there'll be new regulation, I think it's pretty unlikely. The UK and the EU have both legislated on online safety recently. The EU is obviously concluding its legislation around AI. There are certain provisions which we can come on to talk to that are relevant in this regard. But in terms of whether anyone in Brussels has the time, energy to get things through before the elections, not really. Likewise, in the UK, there isn't really time for new legislation in this regard. Then in Washington, the partisan divide, where both sides see a problem with platforms and both sides see a potential problem with AI content during the elections, they see it for very different reasons, which is why you're unlikely to see much coming out of DC. Great. And I think the fact that uh, technically asked the question around AI, but so inevitably platforms kind of get brought into that perhaps leads to my second question, which is what happens around this election year in terms of social media? Speaking to stakeholders like, for example, the Electoral Commission, they said, yes, AI is something we need to keep an eye on, but our focus is still social media. So my question is, Given that we have uh, all of these new pieces of legislation that you mentioned, we have the DSA in Europe, we have the Online Safety Act in the UK, how far do you think those go in terms of actually changing things for social media companies, but also addressing the concerns that the public have around electoral uh, misinformation? Well, the first point to make here is that 
is the point that you had by omission of the US in your opening question there, which is the fact that there is no legislation in the US in this regard. So those elections, which are ultimately the most important for setting the tone for the reputations of the companies we're talking about, given it is the most powerful country in the world and the the largest uh, election in the Western world, they are going to take place, those elections, as they did in 2020, i.e. the rules of platforms like Meta, Twitter, YouTube, and various others, what they think should or shouldn't be on platforms and should be allowed online is what is going to govern those elections. So actually, the regulatory framework and legislative framework for the most important elections next year isn't going to change. In the UK, the situation is broadly similar. The Online Safety Act does include a new committee on misinformation, but it will have limited impact on what actually happens during the election year. Clearly, the regulator Ofcom will be looking very closely and looking to apply powers where it can to content, AI content or otherwise, that it believes are sort of misinformation harmful in various different ways. The greatest changes will obviously take place in the EU. We've had the Digital Services Act. The world's largest platforms will have a responsibility to have systems in place to tackle misinformation. And we saw in late December enforcement actions by the European Commission, by Commissioner Thierry Breton against X, which is obviously formerly Twitter. And it was on these, uh, one of the many charges that were leveled against X was around disinformation and failing in their duties with regards to that. And I think that is probably the pattern we're going to see, which is further tensions played out in public, the commission wanting to show it is taking action ahead of the elections around disinformation and doing so in a very public way, either on social media or in letters that it published otherwise. The interesting question which follows is how will platforms respond to this? X and its owner, Elon Musk, is probably a bit of an outlier in overtly challenging the legitimacy of the DSA framework. I suspect other companies will be more cautious, a little bit more low level in their response. There's a question, though, of whether they will actually look to go further in the other direction in terms of removing lots of content, more than they might have done otherwise, in order to avoid falling foul of these new rules. I think then you'll probably see criticisms in the other direction, that they have over-moderated, they've taken too much content down in a way that isn't reasonable. And I think perhaps another interesting dynamic, in addition to the platforms changing, the governance systems changing, um, is something that um, I know Mark Scott at Politico has spoken a bit about, which is about perhaps the voters and the users of these platforms changing. So I think he made an argument over the summer that because millions of people had started following COVID-19 conspiracy accounts on social media over that period, a lot of those people were now following more fringe political views than they had been previously for for previous elections. And so that might also change the type of content that they are looking for. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. In addition, kind of moving on from the elections point then onto our second key thing to watch for 2024. We've already alluded to the fact that tech companies can often get sucked into the mess of international supply chains, export controls, whether there can be any international agreement on mutual safety objectives. And I think the kind of question that comes out of that is what happens in particular on the US-China decoupling point. This obviously isn't new. and It's something that we've been looking at and tracking for, for years already. But in the context of a new election, perhaps there is a question of 
would a Republican victory see a change in approach and whether tech companies should be anticipating anything new for, for the year to come? So clearly the election is going to be a major point of discontinuity in tech policy. And we've talked a little bit already, Megan, about how content moderation is an example of that. President Trump or former President Trump has been highly critical of the roles of platforms in deplatforming conservative figures as he sees it, most notably himself. And his approach to that has been echoed widely across Republican circles. And we've actually seen legislation at the state level to try and prevent this from happening. So that, for example, could be one agenda that could gain greater prominence under a Republican presidency in the way that it hasn't been able to do under President Biden. I'd also be interested if you to think about AI policy. We've also talk, already talked about the way in which Republicans are concerned about AI policy and so-called bias in a liberal direction with regards to gender AI. That may play out as well, and it may affect the way in which the executive orders we've seen recently from the US and the Biden administration with regards to AI, whether they will be picked up with enthusiasm by a Republican presidency, I'd be quite sceptical about. Likewise, and I think we're going to go on to talk about digital taxation, Republicans in Congress are very opposed to the agreement and OCD, or maybe not all of them, but several prominent figures are. And again, given the track record of Donald Trump himself, whether he would want to pursue a multilateral agreement on digital taxation, which affects large American companies, is really open to question should he take power after the next election. But to your point, China and Chinese tech is actually the opposite. It's probably an area where we will see a large degree of continuity. And we saw a large degree of continuity between the, Biden, between the Trump presidency and the Biden presidency. Under Trump, the tone towards Chinese tech companies like Huawei was pretty aggressive, targeted individual companies, and did it so in a really public manner. Now, Biden didn't continue that tone or those tactics necessarily, but the broad thrust of targeting Chinese tech continued. He did it in a slightly, and has done it in a slightly more systematic manner, looking to starve the Chinese tech sector of access to advanced technologies, and most notably semiconductors. But the broad point remains that there is a real rich stream of continuity between what Trump did and what Biden did. Now, we can expect that to continue. Indeed, I think during the elections, we can actually expect both parties to tout the anti-China positioning. And we can imagine that there will be a continuation in the desire to starve off Chinese competitors from US, uh, particularly in the area of, of AI, where the US is broadly perceived to have a bit of a lead, and what, but perhaps only by a few years that it wants to maintain that lead. So you would expect under both a Biden or a Trump presidency that they would look at the way in which current export controls and restrictions they have to potentially be tightened. Uh, you could look at the role of, say, US hyperscaler cloud service providers and whether there should be further restrictions on them working with Chinese companies, for example. But broadly speaking, while we expect much discontinuity under a Republican presidency for tech policy, that one area uh, we expect to be broadly consistent. If we've spoken about fragmentation, perhaps that leads us neatly onto uh, the opposite for our third key thing to watch for 2024, which is multilateralism. And we've talked a bit about the fact that digital tax is one example that is particularly notable here. 
I think you've done a, a separate podcast episode already, Conan, uh, looking at digital tax in a bit more of a deep dive. But it seems that there are, well, there is rather scope for important decisions to be made over the course of this year as well. So looking forward rather than backward, perhaps, with the deadline of June, um, I think is the, the deadline for securing sufficient signatories to, to make this OECD proposal a reality. Do we think that that is going to be met? What's at stake if that doesn't go through? Um, and what are the implications if that fails? Will we see more fragmentation uh, and more national approaches to digital taxation instead? So it's interesting that you're going straight in with digital taxation. I think most people who've been covering tech policy and probably on a lot of this podcast over the last year, where we talk about multilateralism, we're often focusing on AI. And we've seen most obviously with the UK's AI Safety Summit in November, real attempts at multilateralism over the past 12 months. And we can, just to pause on that moment before I go on to the digital tax, we can expect that to continue. Uh, you will have the work plan for the G7 Hiroshima process. You are going to see, I think, a virtual AI Safety Summit in South Korea in uh, sometime before the summer. And then a second full-on summit in France, I believe, towards the end of this year. So it is going to continue. However, going back to what we were talking about before, when you think about the AI Act in Brussels looking to be completed in the coming weeks and months, and the implementation of that happening without comparable legislative measures in the US or other major policy centers, I think it's clear that global AI regulation is unlikely to converge in 2024 in the way that some people had hoped it would be. The opposite to that has been, as you say, digital taxation. It has been the one success story of tech multilateralism. Tech multilateralism have failed in privacy and data transfers. It's failed in content moderation. It's failed in digital competition. But on digital taxation, we have had an agreement at the OECD. The initial agreement was in 2021, which set out this two-pillar solution. As you said, Megan, if people were interested in the details of this, did a podcast with our colleague Russell Lamb a few weeks ago. So, so listen into that to understand the nuts and bolts on it. But broadly speaking, there was a, there's a framework agreement in 2021, which has been built up through lower level, more detailed agreements since. So most recently, we had a multilateral convention on redistribution of taxing rights in October 2023. The significance of this agreement is that if it comes into place, then it will continue the moratorium on national and EU digital services taxes. So countries who are part of this OECD process will not be able to introduce digital services taxes in their jurisdictions, new ones in their jurisdictions, while this process is ongoing. However, to the point that you just made, if the deadline is missed to get a sufficient number of signatories, and the role of the US is very important in meeting that threshold, if that deadline is missed in June this year, then that moratorium falls and we could see a raft of new digital services taxes across the globe, even an EU-wide digital services tax. The problem we face then is that if the multilateral agreement breaks down and you get a whole raft of national taxation processes, two things come up. Firstly, if you're an international tech company, you're having to deal with different regimes across the globe. Some will be consistent, but some won't. So you're going to have to deal with a whole range of different measures that are potentially going to be conflicting. The second is that the US will almost inevitably begin to threaten retaliatory trade tariffs 
against countries, which could end up in a the actual opposite of this whole digital taxation story being a triumph for multilateralism, turning to a sober, sober story of how tech multilateralism may not be possible in this day and age. Well, a cheery little note there from Colin. Perhaps moving on to the fourth one. I think in previous years, we've always had almost a defining technology of each year. I think in 2022, everyone was talking about the metaverse and that sort of led to policy initiatives like the virtual worlds initiatives and the EU. In 2023, I don't think anyone could dispute that that was generative AI and everyone sort of questioned what policy and regulation and governance needed to change in order to accommodate that. So basically, my question is, should should we be watching for specific technologies of 2024? What is the technology of 2024 going to be? And is the policymaker attention that comes from that going to be coming from a place of restriction or building up innovation for competitiveness or maybe a little bit of both? The first thing I'd say is that it's extremely hard to predict what will be the buzz technology of this year because it's ultimately almost always determined by what companies and the tech sector themselves do. So if you were to have asked me this question at the start of 2021, there is absolutely no way we would have said the metaverse. It wasn't really on the radar, but Facebook's rebrand to become meta and to really invest heavily in the so-called metaverse really put it on the agenda. Likewise, we've had this conversation at the start of 2022. Yeah, there was a bit of a buzz around generative AI, particularly in AI circles, but it was impossible to predict just what a transformational moment the launch of ChatGPT would be at the end of that year. And we've obviously seen how that just has dominated the policy and regulatory environment throughout the course of this year. So just to make a very obvious point that the policy world and regulatory world globally on tech policy isn't inward looking. It's actually often very responsive to external events, whether that's around what happens at election time and the implications for the tech sector, or indeed whether a new breakthrough technology which raise new policy and regulatory questions. But if we had to pick one which is increasingly coming into focus, and I think this is probably partly because of two things, the shift to interest in AI policy but also the shift in trade policy to this concept of economic security and the need to invest in key technologies and make sure you don't have dependencies in other parts of the world. The one technology which is really coming into focus is quantum computing. Now, the technology itself, as, as far as I understand it and what you can read from industry and from regulatory analysis, the, the, the technology is not necessarily there. We saw last month some uh, some advances from IBM, for example, but generally speaking, the technology is not mature. So whether we would see a chat GPT moment this year with quantum computing is probably quite unlikely. However, it is quite clear when you look at the potential of the technology, which would totally transform the potential for compute and would be able to tackle existing problems in a significantly more rapid manner and potentially solve problems that we cannot solve today with current computing technology, it could be utterly transformational. So I think in the way that we should think about this from a policy perspective is that regulation of quantum is not really going to be a big issue this year. Yes, we can see that it could have impacts in areas like encryption or indeed cybersecurity or maybe intellectual property, but that's a little bit far off at the moment. But what we are probably going to see 
is increased intention through industrial policy mechanisms, whether that's investing in national research initiatives like we've seen in various countries around the world throughout the course of 2023, or indeed, going back to what we were just talking about, trying to ensure if you are in the US and if you're in Washington, DC and becoming the next president or taking an influential role in Congress next year, then efforts to restrict the ability of competitors like China to compete with the US or indeed Europe will be, I suspect, a major focus of where economic security and trade policy goes moving forward. And I think to your point about different countries seeming to ramp up on this, you mentioned the US, but actually I think it's quite interesting that the US is one of the few countries that didn't publish a big strategy last year. I think we saw the UK, Canada, India, Australia, they all announced over the course of 2023 national quantum strategies with as you point out, slightly varying focuses on whether it was kind of funding for R&D or creating hubs or commercialization. But the US, I don't think, has done as much explicitly in the last couple of years, although they are expected to finalize this year some important standards and then start kind of working with the private sector and cybersecurity agencies to enact those. So yeah, certainly one to watch. And it'll be interesting to see if there is any scope for international cooperation, because I've read a lot about desire for a global quantum ecosystem, but the security and national competitiveness reasons that you outline will perhaps hinder that. So onto the final one of our five, which is less about a specific technology or a particular trend, and in fact, kind of how tech companies are dealing with policymakers and a bit of a shift that we are seeing there. There have been a few examples recently that I think make this worth talking about. Signal and WhatsApp in the UK threatened to exit the country entirely if they felt that the encryption debate didn't go their way. Similarly, our senior advisor and uh, former FCC chairman Tom Wheeler was saying at his book launch the other day that he foresaw an era of tech companies having to be a bit more bolshy with regulators and kind of demand greater regulatory coordination and interoperability across jurisdictions. So this kind of shift towards tech companies perhaps being more demanding rather than just taking the governance that they're given. Do you think that's a trend or do we just hear about the most high profile examples because they make the press? And if it is a trend, what is causing this more aggressive public affairs strategy? To set it in context, we had a period from, I guess, the mid 90s through to broadly speaking, the early to mid 2010s when there was large-scale regulatory forbearance for the tech sector. Companies like Google and Facebook got to expand, develop their product, grow their user base, experiment with new technologies and services. Broadly speaking, without a huge amount of policy, regulatory, or political scrutiny. That obviously changed in the 2010s. Firstly, not, perhaps not firstly, but one of the first movers there was, was the EU, clearly. And what we started to see at that point was that technology companies, their messaging was to say, yes, we get you. We can't move fast and break things anymore. We are responsible corporate citizens. We agree with your objectives in this legislation or that legislation, but we think it should be better in X, Y, and Z ways. And there's ways that we will work with you to improve how those rules are designed and implemented. I think to your point, Megan, what we have started to see over the last 12 to 18 months is a bit of a shift in tone 
where technology companies seem to be more prepared to be aggressive in public with governments and regulators about the decisions that they are taking. And you cited some of those examples earlier. But I think this probably comes down to the fact that when you look at parallels between now and the financial services sector after the crash and the post-crash regulatory reform in the early 2010s, you had a, there's many parallels, huge amounts of reform that the industry was seen as a problem that needed to be fixed. A lot of legislative reform that took place over a five to seven year period. But in the case of the financial services sector, it started to fall off. It started to get slower. And regulators and policymakers actually changed their approach and started to look about how actually they can encourage the financial services sector to grow and to invest again more broadly into the real economy. The question is, I mean, we haven't really, we're not really seeing that now in the same way with the tech sector. When you look at what the EU may do after the next elections, there's lots of things on the agenda where that's the, you know, the reform of the GDPR, where that's new rules around helping telecoms companies get money off tech companies to invest. Lots of different threads are out there that we expect the EU institutions push on. So I think the calculation you are starting to see is that technology companies trying to articulate that there is a cost to regulation in Europe, that if European policymakers take certain decisions, there is a cost. Now, in financial services, that was easier because the people making those arguments were Santander, they were Barclays, they were Deutsche Bank. You don't have that in, in tech. So the threats sound a little bit more shrill uh, and they sound a little bit more aggressive than what we saw with the financial services sector, but it's a similar attempt to articulate that there are trade-offs in the regulatory choices that are taken. And I guess there is a question about the relative importance, particularly in the UK, about the commercial importance of a market and whether a whether a technology company is willing to launch products in markets, which ultimately are relatively small for their revenues, in order to adhere to and agree and implement a bunch of rules that are specific just to that one market. And we've seen elements of that in the Online Safety Act, for instance. So I think what we are seeing is more of those calculations and more of those calculations being made explicitly. And I think we will see over the next five years more pushback from technology companies towards new rules being created. I would argue that perhaps another dynamic that stems from what you've just outlined is more support for domestic champions within Europe as well. I think because of this perceived vulnerability, for example, I think we've seen it with AI, where France and various other member states have sort of started recognizing if the big AI American giants pulled out, where would that leave us? Now we're starting to see a lot of support for Mistral and other European champions, uh, perhaps as a result of that. The final follow-up question I had to, to this was just as someone who has advised tech companies on their political strategy for years now, is this sort of tax something that you would actually recommend? Presumably there's quite a lot at stake here if you start going in with these more aggressive arguments and it can be presumably quite damaging to your reputation as a whole. But I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. It's hard to be totally universal in, in that sort of advice. And it's all highly, highly contextual, I think. And just, just to give that a little bit more specificity, I think the Microsoft Activision is, example is quite a good one. So for those who didn't follow it very closely, the UK's Competition and Markets Authority looked to block that merger earlier this year. And this 
produced a furious reaction from Microsoft, particularly Brad Smith, who's their most senior public policy executive, and a flurry of advocacy and lobbying by Microsoft in order to try and reverse that decision. Now, they were pretty successful, actually, in a way. Now, the CMA might contest this, but it's clear that the pressure that was brought to bear on the CMA did contribute to the fact that the CMA decided to unblock the merger. Yes, Microsoft had to give further remedies to get it passed, but ultimately the CMA did not block it. And that Microsoft was clearly quite effective in generating support from media commentators, slightly guarded comments by Jeremy Hunt, the UK Chancellor in support, and others. So clearly they had an impact and that helped change the decision in the way that they needed to. But there is a cost. You can't play that card all the time. Microsoft have built up a reputation over the last 15 years and deliberately cultivated this reputation as a more responsible technology company, as a partner to governments. And that has essentially been their political brand. And the public comments that Brad Smith made obviously run counter to that and have undercut to some extent that work that they have spent for the last 15 years trying to develop. So there is a question looking forward of whether there will be a cost in their reputation, the way that they can engage on other issues in the future as a result. I suspect within Microsoft, the argument would be, this is a, what, 70-odd billion merger and acquisition is pretty important for the future direction of the company. If there's going to be an issue where we're going to go nuclear on a regulator, this is the issue. So they, I suspect that is the calculation that they took. But I think for other companies, it is essentially that trade-off. Is the issue important enough to act in a way which might burn bridges with policymakers you may want to rely on in the future? If it is, then perhaps on, this on a particular issue in the future, there is a case to be made for being more assertive and more aggressive in public. Great. Thank you very much. So I guess to wrap up our five tech trends to look out for this coming year, election mis- and disinformation um, and what happens around the various elections that are happening in 2024. The US-China decoupling is expected to continue irrespective of the outcome of the, the US election, uh, but what form that takes will be something to keep an eye on. Digital tax with the June deadline for the OECD process, will it be met? Uh, if not, what will national strategies on digital taxation look like? What is going to be the outcome uh, for new technologies like quantum? And finally, are we seeing uh, a shift in how tech companies um, work with or against, uh, in some cases, policymakers? So as always, if you or your business are interested in hearing about any more of either those or anything else that we haven't covered, but you think perhaps should have been part of this podcast, please don't hesitate to get in touch with us. Um, you can find contact details for both Conan and myself on the GC website at www.globalcouncil.com. Thank you very much.